to find Charisse. I went to libraries and talked to librarians about how they could find someone in the area. They had me looking through directions and searching on the internet. It was a lost cause. I was not going to find Charisse. One day in my routine of wandering the city without purpose, I found myself in a park. There was a hill, a steep hill of mud and rocks, and I decided to climb up it. It was my first taste of exercise in three weeks. At one point, the angle steepened and there was a big drop-off, where a fall would mean certain injury. Probably not death, but at least a broken arm. Maybe a concussion if I hit my head right. Given the present moment for the first time as a runaway, I clung to life. I completed the move, stood on top of the hill, and felt endorphins. This is Luke Mihal with the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from The Climbing Zine, and welcome to episode three. We're going to continue on with American Climber, my memoir. I said in kind of my intro for the last episode that it was some of the toughest times of my life, and that definitely continues into where we are with this next part. You know, I, I technically, I guess I was like a runaway in this this time period of my life. I was about 20, and I had zero you know, contact with friends and family for a couple weeks, two to three weeks of my life. It was very hard, and I definitely empathize with other people that go through similar struggles. And it was it was incredibly hard, and for me, it was my friends and family supporting me that got me back on my feet. And I am proud of putting this out there. I encourage you know anyone who's been through a hard time. It's important to tell our stories. It's also important to. I guess wait till we are ready to tell these stories because these events transpired at this point over 20 years ago. And when I started writing this book, it was around 15 years ago. So you got to be ready to tell your story. And I certainly was. And the exciting part about this podcast is that more people are going to get to hear this story. As a reminder, the number one way to support the climbing scene and to support this podcast is by subscribing to the climbing zine. We come out three times a year. We bill ourselves as the world's creative climbing publication. It's all about good storytelling, good climbing. We're not about the numbers. We're just about the great stories. You can also buy American Climber at our website where you can subscribe at climbingzine.com or you can check our Instagram page at the link in our bio. But without further ado, let's get into episode three. Chapter 3. It's painful to try to write this part of the story. As painful as it was to pack up everything and leave. In my mind, it was that or suicide. Something about me was consumed by demons, and I wanted to rid myself of them. Running away was the answer. I didn't know if I had it in me to kill myself. It was just a lingering thought that I wanted to be done with this existence. It was pure survival mode. I slipped out of my parents' house at midnight in a similar fashion I'd done in high school, escaping for a night of simple sinning, but now I was escaping forever from my childhood home. The feeling of freedom is often false, like the freedom of too many drinks, where you feel like something is right when it's really wrong. I was beyond right and wrong. I was hurting inside. My soul was dead. But I felt that freedom as I drove 12 hours straight to the East Coast, where there was green rolling hills that welcomed me smoking cigarettes, drinking soda, and popping Dexedrine. I barely felt human, but I felt a release. I made an action. 
I didn't think about my parents, who were probably beyond distraught that their son had run away the very day they were moving into their new home. I didn't think about my friends, who probably felt worried and betrayed. I didn't think about work, where my shifts would have to be covered and my coworkers were probably confused by my departure. I simply thought about finding Cherise. I showed up at a fish show in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I was certain that she was on fish tour, from the word of mouth through my friends. Compared to now, 1999 might as well have been the dark ages. No one had a cell phone, at least not college kids or hippies scraping by for summer tour. Email was used, but not every day, every minute like it is now. It was all word of mouth. At the fish show, I felt a surge of adrenaline to have escaped. Maybe it was a similar urge to what an escaping prisoner might feel, sure to be caught, but free for a moment. At the concert, I enjoyed the scape of the music and felt like I was the only prisoner in a venue of tens of thousands of free people. So many women looked like her. Every woman looked like her. Every hippie girl with dreadlocks and a sundress could be her. And how would she take the news? What did I expect from her after the arrival of the news? I was an insane man. Then, something happened. At the end of the show, while I was scanning anyone and everyone, I saw someone I knew. Bruno, a guy I went to school with at Southern Illinois. We embraced in a big hug, and I lied. I lied about why I was there and my plans for the future. It felt terrible to lie to a friend. Bruno and I teamed up, and he took me to his place in Baltimore, close to where the next show would be. I faked happiness, like everything was normal, and I was just out catching some shows. I sold him my entire collection of CDs for gas money, and he asked me if I was sure. We went to two more shows in the area, and there was no sign of Charisse. I ran into some mutual friends, and they said she was on Widespread Panic Tour, not Fish Tour. Widespread Panic was playing in Nebraska in two days, so I drove to Nebraska. Traversing back from the east to the midwest, I was on the road, but there was nothing Kerouac about it. I guess maybe the sadness that is presented in his later work, the sadness that came later after the joy was present. I was so profoundly sad I could not even cry a tear. I could not think about contacting my friends or family. The road was my home, and I didn't have a single connection to a person in this entire world. I had fits of anger where I would punch my steering wheel and dashboard. I ate fast food, all the time, and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, my staple. My tape player was probably my best friend. I'd sold all my CDs for gas money, and I had seven tapes, which I played over and over, mixed with the sound of local radio stations when I could get them. I wished and wished and wished my life could go back to normal. I'd go into a mall somewhere and see families and wished I could go back to being a child and start over. Everything made me sad. I arrived at another concert. The scene was only a few hundred people versus thousands. No sign of Charisse in the audience. After the show, I picked up trash in the parking lot, with some hope that karma could work off the monumental mistake that was my existence. I went to another show in St. Louis the next day. No sign of Charisse again. I noticed a couple people from my hometown, and I hid my face under a ball cap and hooded sweatshirt, for fear they had heard I'd ran away and I would be discovered. That night I was sitting in my car in despair, no clue of what to do next, nowhere to go, nowhere to be, an adult runaway. Suddenly a police officer approached my car, Get out of the car and put your hands behind your head. He had a gun drawn on me. I explained that this was my car. He explained that there was a problem with robberies in this area. You better get out of here, son. 
for your own good. I got a hotel room somewhere in the highway outside of St. Louis. I watched the sun come up that morning and could not appreciate the beauty. I noticed the beauty, the miracle that is the sun coming up every morning, but I was numb to it, dull, like beauty has to be part of something bigger. There has to be happiness in your heart to feel beauty. I did some research and found Charisse's parents' phone number. It was a call of desperation. Her mother picked up and I explained what was happening. She was abrupt. There is no way my daughter gave you hepatitis. She had a vaccine for that. When I asked her where Charisse was, she said she did not know, but she had told her she was in Phoenix. What a sad world. Neither one of our parents knew where we were. They brought us into the world with love, raised us, made sacrifices for two decades to try to give us a better life. And we were failures, distant and absent. I decided to drive west to Arizona on Interstate 70. For the first time as an adult, I crossed over through Colorado. I felt betrayed to see such beauty and magic and not have an ounce of enthusiasm for it. I arrived in Arizona a couple days later, haggard, over a week gone from home. Chapter 4 I felt more lost in Phoenix than ever. At least at the concerts, there was an easy task of scanning every face to see if it was Charisse. And at the concerts, there was a small resemblance of what community is. On the road and in the streets of the city, there was much more of an empty void. I continued to hate myself, to punch my dashboard in anger, to smoke cigarettes slowly, and the only form of suicide I was brave enough for. I found a rest area to sleep at at night in my car, night after night. Sometimes I would fall asleep at the wheel and be jolted awake as I drove off the road. That happened more than once. Death could have taken me, but I didn't have it in me to contemplate what form of suicide I would choose. I did things alone. I played frisbee golf. I went to bowling alleys alone during the day and smoked cigarettes. Goddamn, there's a whole layer of America that's perfectly suited for this suicidal, sad person where you could live an entire lifetime in that state of being and no one would even ask if you were okay. To find Charisse, I went to libraries and talked to librarians about how they could find someone in the area. They had me looking through directories and searching on the internet. It was a lost cause. I was not going to find Charisse. One day, in my routine of wandering the city without purpose, I found myself in a park. There was a hill, a steep hill of mud and rocks, and I decided to climb up it. It was my first taste of exercise in three weeks. At one point, the angle steepened and there was a big drop-off, where a fall would mean certain injury. Probably not death, but at least a broken arm, maybe a concussion if I hit my head right. Given the present moment for the first time as a runaway, I clung to life. I completed the move, stood on top of the hill, and felt endorphins. That afternoon, feeling alive, the sorrow of guilt from not contacting my parents weighed on my heart. Later in the day, I went over to the college campus and emailed them. The next day, I returned again to the computer lab to find a message from them. It was stern. They communicated how disappointed they were in my actions, but they also expressed relief that I was alive, and they showed me unconditional love. They would support me as I tried to climb out of my depression, and I was treated for my hepatitis. I left Phoenix and drove around the West. Both my parents and myself decided I should get back in college, find some direction again. I was convinced I was sick and I was never going to have a lover again, but I eventually came around to the idea that life has to go on. I drove around Arizona, Utah, and into Colorado to find a college to go to. Everything was purely on a whim, how I felt when I was in a certain place. 
Nothing felt right until I noticed a town called Gunnison, surrounded by green on the road map. The green was a million acres of national forest, and the map indicated there was a liberal arts college there. I didn't know what a liberal arts college was. My negative mind told me I probably didn't belong there. I've been in survival mode in academics my entire life, and after two colleges, I didn't have a clue as to what I would major in. The road led me there, though, when I stopped in the college to have a look. Chapter 5 Gunnison quickly became a replacement home for my weary, tired, vagabond existence. I made a campground by the Blue Mesa Reservoir of my home and lived amongst the retired people, living a similar, yet surely more relaxed existence. I finally spoke to my parents on the phone, and they were again stern yet supportive. There was an underlying tone of unconditional love. I surely didn't love myself then, but at least I had some love. I spoke with Tim and Caleb, and they indeed felt betrayed, but once that passed, we made plans to climb in Colorado. Caleb was moving out to Colorado, and there was a feeling that Tim needed to get out as well. A great migration seemed to be in the air. I began to form a routine. Still deep in the throes of loneliness and hopelessness, but a routine nonetheless. My campsite was nine miles outside of town, and I paid $5 a day to stay there. Years later, I would tell friends this, and they would make fun of me to no end, because there was free camping just a mile outside of town at Hartman Rocks, a rolling landscape of sagebrush and granite domes and boulders, where the mountain lion roam, and at night, when the stars fall, there's a feeling of no boundary between heaven and earth. I was not ready for such pleasures and joys anyways, so I moped around this paved campsite among the retired seniors. In my heart, I believed I was older and more tired than all of them. A depressed person needs little successes, tiny steps to try to regain that reason that we're all here on this earth, to be happy and enjoy people and love. One day I rode nine miles on my bike into town. The bike had been on my car for the entire journey and had yet to be put to use. The ride felt monumental as I hacked up green phlegm from all my smoking. I visited the doctor to find out how I would begin treating my hepatitis, and more tests revealed I never actually had it. I tested positive because I had had a vaccine for it. I was only sick in my mind and not in my body. It was a brief wave of relief, but I was still sick in the mind. Baby steps. I felt incredible shame to have run away for no real reason, and I never told a soul my real story. It was easy to hide in this little mountain town. Every car's license plate seemed to be from another state. Plus, there was a hippie vibe, and my appearance was more ordinary than anywhere I'd ever lived. I applied to the college there, just a mere two weeks before classes would start, and I was accepted. The campus was beautiful, old red brick buildings and perfectly manicured green grass. There was a vibe that this was a place of true learning and discovery, not merely an education of transaction like the larger schools I went to in Illinois. Plus, there were no frats or sororities, and I liked that. To the south of campus was a small mountain, though all mountains seem large to a Midwesterner that had a giant W for Western State College. Later, I would learn the ancient people lived atop the mountain some 10,000 years ago. The mind of the flatlander cannot possibly comprehend the massive scale of wild lands, mountains, rocks, and wildlife that surrounds Gunnison. It's too much, too big, and honestly, it meant little to me. I had to meet friends first. My body was still in shock, my soul still desperate and tired, and I felt as lost as ever those first few weeks in Gunnison. At one moment, just after being accepted to Western State, 
I spoke with my brother and shared with him that I was going to move back home to Bloomington. I told him not to tell mom and dad. But then, I just didn't move back. I don't really know why. Perhaps some spirits or angels kept me there, the same ones that protected me as I fell asleep at the wheel and lived on the road. Maybe it was just luck. I was far from believing in positive spirits then, and even now, as a believer in some greater higher power, I still don't have a firm opinion on why some people survive their epic tale of sadness and why some people take their lives during that time. So many of us endure sadness. Some meet their maker escaping the sadness, leaving others to be sad. Some of us live to tell the story and taste the sweet remedy that is redemption. I moved into an apartment and made my first Gunnison friend, an upstairs neighbor, an older guy in his mid-thirties named John, who, like me, smoked weed and cigarettes. He was an East Coast guy who spoke tough but was a softy on the inside, and he shared with me whatever he had. I did the same. It was nice to have someone to talk to, though I didn't open up about all the pain I endured over the last six months. I didn't open up about it for years. And, just six weeks after I ran away from everything I'd ever known, a new start officially began when fall courses commenced in my new place of study. Chapter 6 When a wildfire ravages through the forest, the devastation is not so hard to see. The trees that remain standing are a barren, the ground blackened, and it hardly resembles the healthy forest that once stood there. Give it some time, though, and greenery starts to appear. Flowers bloom again, and eventually young trees grow to replace the previous generation. If you could have looked into my soul, it was dark, too, but Gunnison and the people who lived there put a new light and life into my being. Just before classes started, I took a job as a dishwasher at a local restaurant with a small bar. The owner was a so-called recovering alcoholic who had moved to Colorado from Illinois, and I got the feeling he was running away from something, too, and his alcoholism seemed to come from as dark as a place as I was coming from. Buying a bar as a recovering alcoholic seemed illogical, but at the time I was in no position to judge someone's logic. After months of insanity and without a purpose, it was hard to adjust to a normal routine. Fortunately, nothing about Gunnison was really normal, and my surroundings did not force me to be normal. This was a small town of less than 10,000, more than 100 miles away from any interstate, with a liberal arts college and a bunch of people who wanted to get away from the mainstream America to live a different sort of life. My return to climbing came in the form of my favorite medium, the outdoor gym. There was a climbing gym right on campus, and I could sneak quick sessions in between classes. I had a tremendous amount of anxiety. I felt like I was hiding something about my own past, how I got there, like I was a stranger in my own flesh in a strange new place. Climbing calmed my anxiety and transformed it into energy. The world forgives and forgets, especially when you are a young man. And even if it took me a year to realize it, I'd been given a second chance. The first sign of healing was that I no longer considered ending my life. I wanted to live even though I was so insecure I thought I'd never attract another woman. The second sign I was improving my health, both mentally and physically, was that I wanted to stop using Dexedrine. Looking back, I'm sure that contributed greatly to my poor mental health, and it makes me sad drugs like that were the solution to my problems. There was no one to blame, though. My teachers and parents were just trying to get me through school, and that worked. Though I picked out my courses quickly and erratically, I managed to sign up for a single-credit mountain biking class. 
The entire class was held out at Hartman's, and I nearly died each class, forced to climb up a steep hill called Kill Hill. Upon arrival at the top of Kill Hill, I coughed for ten minutes straight, and each time I felt like demons were leaving my body. I chalked it up to cigarettes and told my classmates each time, I gotta quit. One day, my teacher announced that he had some climbing gear for sale. I quickly expressed my interest, and two sessions later I had my first climbing rack, in hand. That night I went over to a co-worker's house, and we laid it out on the floor, staring at the gear, playing with it, discussing what type of adventures these camming devices would take us on. We marveled at the technology and simplicity, and we talked like young kids talk when they are readying for an adventure, with no foundation of experience to plan said adventures. Chapter 6 When I traveled home for Christmas that year, I could hardly mend the pain that I inflicted on my friends and family, but everyone seemed to want to just move on. I was still incredibly closed off from my emotions, and I didn't discuss the inner turmoil that I'd just experienced. No one really wanted to bring it up anyway, so the talk was talk of the future. Caleb was planning on moving to Colorado, and I gave Tim a big speech on how he should as well. Just before New Year's Eve, in the unnecessary hype that surrounded the transition into the 2000s, that the Y2K computer bug was going to shut down the world, Tim and I headed down south to Carbondale, where we planned to do some climbing in Jackson Falls. We met up with Jeff and his childhood friend Lane. Immediately upon arrival, we noticed something was off. Lane, who is a recovering heroin addict, was using methadone to fight his urges, and he was sharing it with Jeff. Jeff was the completely opposite person I knew from a year before. His temper was high and he was distraught. He demanded Tim share his weed and bullied him into smoking it. Usually content with mellow music like the Grateful Dead, he instead blasted Eminem, early Eminem, and all the darkness that surrounded him with lyrics about drugs, abuse, and self-loathing. Out of darkness comes light. We headed into the forest that is Jackson Falls, unseasonably warm with only a hint of snow on the cliffs and trees. Jeff was on the brink of insanity. We had one rope, 50 meters long, and he asked for it so he could do a rope jump off the cliff where a waterfall cascaded in the summer, a mere trickle at the moment. We tried to talk him out of it, and he replied with explicitives that he knew what he was doing. He'd seen a Dan Osmond video and wanted to try it for himself. Jeff didn't know that Osmond had died a year earlier in a rope jumping accident, and we did our best to try to explain the situation. We were so frustrated with him, we eventually just handed him the rope to shut him up, and we went off on our own to do some bouldering. We spent a couple hours in the magical play that is bouldering, and then met up with Jeff and Lane. Jeff didn't perform the rope jump, and we tried to explain that we were happy about that, but evil had come over him in the form of pills. He'd eaten a dozen by that point, and his eyes were glazed over. And the Jeff that I knew, peaceful and thoughtful, was gone. We all packed into the car with Jeff at the wheel and decided we'd head back to Carbondale for New Year's Eve. Jeff sped off in the car, and Tim and I in the back seat were terrified. Wide-eyed, we looked at each other, and I pleaded to Jeff, Please, slow down. Then Jeff turned the car into reverse and sped backward, and we really got freaked out. Stop the car, I demanded. And he did. And then he sped up again, veering off the road. He crashed into a tree. I was relieved the car had stopped. Then Jeff charged out of the car and started running up the dirt road. We watched in wide-eyed amazement as Jeff charged off like an Olympic sprinter, disappearing off into the distance, and he was gone. We were so fed up with Jeff that we just let him go. 
I figured he'd be back in a little while, calmed down and possibly down from the high. But as the sunset and the final night of the 90s came upon us, he didn't come back. So we built a fire and huddled around it with a bottle of rum. Though we were worried about our friend, the vibe was of intoxication and there was a feeling of ending. The 90s were ending. And a feeling of beginning, and more than anything in the world, I wanted a new beginning. And who offers a better chance to start anew than Mother Nature? The earth is just a series of endings and beginnings. Green grass emerging from the ashes of sadness and failure. The next morning, we woke up weary, without supplies to cook a proper breakfast. So we hiked over to where Jeff's car was, started it up, and drove into Carbondale. The radio didn't seem to have any alarming news that the world was going to end, and Y2K quickly faded from society's collective memory, and a new millennium was upon us. We called Jeff from a payphone, and he had hitchhiked all the way back home. When we knocked on his door, he acted like everything was normal. I was upset with him, and we didn't exchange too many words. We took the train back to Bloomington, and a couple days later, I was back in Colorado. All right, folks, that is episode three of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from The Climbing Zine. Next week, we're going to be back with episode four. Episode four kind of dives into getting settled into Gunnison, kind of learning about these quirky characters and mountain towns. Just me being kind of really impressed and blown away by some of the stories that come out and eventually, you know, telling these people's stories and telling my own became my life's work. But at first I was just in, in total amazement of uh, the type of characters that come out of mountain towns. After I read these stories, it's, it's very interesting for me because sometimes it feels distant. Sometimes it feels painful and sometimes it just feels surreal that I even lived through this stuff. But it's important for me to remember that I did. And it's important to remember that other people go through this stuff. And I think if, for me, the, the number one thing is if someone can see that I went through this stuff and emerged okay, I live a really balanced, happy life now compared to what I was going through. Um, to me, that's the greatest gift I can bring the audience. And hopefully you didn't have to go through anything like that. Maybe it was even worse of what you went through. But to anyone who hears this story or decides to read it, I hope that there's some benefit. Big shout out to Chad Rich, our producer. Chad has really been pushing me. She just got on the phone with him in the middle of recording this episode, and he's really encouraging me. You can support The Climbing Zine by visiting our website and subscribing at climbingzine.com or at the link in our bio in our Instagram page. Uh, we're always running deals. Often it's uh, as cheap as just a few dollars to get a zine and uh not too much more to subscribe. This is Luke Mihal coming at you from Durango, Colorado, from The Climbing Zine, the world's creative climbing publication. <laughs>